All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. Hope that you're all doing well. It's good to be together in the house of the Lord today. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 12, locate verse 2, and I'll be reading uh, verses 2 through 8 this morning. If you're visiting with us, it's really good to have all of you here. If you're visiting, we do uh, welcome you and hope that you feel welcomed and edified during the service today and are just blessed by being with the people of God this morning. Romans chapter 12, not that we're the only people of God, but we are people of God here in this local assembly. Romans chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. I'll read this aloud for us. If you'd please follow along in your translation of the Bible this morning. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then the gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them if prophecy Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Thus concludes the reading of God's word. May the Lord's blessings be upon His Word to our heart this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I come to You in Jesus' name, uh, Lord, today, thanking You that we can come to You. That we can come, Lord, not ashamed, not hesitantly, but we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Uh, that we might find mercy in time of need. And we come, Lord, through our great high priest, Jesus. And, Father, we come not as people who who are good. We don't come as good people. Lord, we come as people whose hearts bring forth evil thoughts and adulteries and fornications and murders and thefts and covetousness and wickedness and deceit and lewdness, and an evil eye, and blasphemy, and pride, and foolishness. Lord, we come as that. We come as those who have nothing to offer. As those, Lord, who have no hope apart from salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, that's all we have, and Jesus is enough. And we thank you for that today. And Father, as we come 
sinful as we may be, Lord, through Christ and faith in Him, we've been sanctified, set aside for Your purpose, and called out from this wicked world in which we live. And Father, I pray that You might give us grace, that we would serve You, Lord, with reverence and godly fear, for we know that our God is a consuming fire. Lord, as Your Word is preached this morning, please use it in our lives now, and let us walk worthy of the calling with which we are called. Thank you for everyone here. Lord, bless and keep us during this time, I pray, and give me strength now to preach Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> All right, so before we get into the message, that I, and the message I'm going to share with you is called Grace, Faith, and Gifts from God. Um, I wanted to let you know that we're having Joined Sunday today at the end of the service, and uh, look forward to that time where a family or two will be coming to uh, join the church and membership. And then um, also another thing I wanted to remind you all of is just really the importance of being friendly to one another. Uh, a lot of you are new here at the church as the Lord's grown us some over the last uh, year and a half. And maybe you look around and you think, well, maybe those people have been here for a long time and I just don't know them yet. There's no need in me getting up and going to talk to them. Don't, don't look at it that way. If you don't know somebody, uh, get up and talk to them and make yourself friendly because that's real important. And New Life Baptist Church is a friendly church, but sometimes we can get comfortable. And when we come in and sit down, we just kind of focus on trying to remove the cobwebs from our head, you know, and get focused in on worshiping the Lord and, and the worship service. I know that's the way that I feel some mornings. And uh, when you have to get up and preach and you feel like you've got cobwebs, cobwebs in your head, it, it's really kind of scary. So um, uh, please do that. You know, we want to be friendly. If there's a family you don't know or someone you don't know, Go and reach out to them and get to know them. Like I've often said over the years, you know, we're a small church. We ought to know everyone that goes to church here and uh, make an effort to do so. It means a lot to folks who are new to those who are visiting. Now, to uh, Romans chapter 12, as we uh, look into this passage, last week, you know, I shared with you uh, really from verse 2, looking primarily at that passage of Scripture and one of the things that I pointed out to you there last week was about the renewing of your mind and the important for us, importance of us being transformed. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I submitted to you that um, the way that that renewal of the mind takes place is not through reading the Bible. That, that's not what Paul says right here. He doesn't say renewing of the mind, read your Bible. And that, that's what we want to say often in, in relation to this. But that's not what Paul says here. And I submitted to you last week, the way in which the renewing of the mind takes place is by presenting yourself a living sacrifice to God. All right, And that's something that we find in these verses. We can go back to verse 1 and see that. Because he says there that by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. All right, so without that 
presenting of ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, we're likely not going to be changed by the reading of the Word. We're likely not going to pray. We're likely not going to serve in the church. We're not going to live a a transformed life. So it's real important that we get that. Now, I want to deal with that for just a moment because that seemed to resonate with some of you last week. And even I think one of the questions I received afterwards is how do we present ourselves a living sacrifice? How do we present ourselves a living sacrifice? If that is key here in this passage to the renewing of the mind and being transformed, how do we do that? So to begin with today, before we continue on in this in throughout this passage, I want to try to deal with that just a little bit this morning. Now, you can go back through the, 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 the book of Romans and see really Paul dealing with uh, what it takes to get a life transformed and what has happened when that life is transformed. And you see in verse 1 that really the same uh, thing that he leans on in order to plead with them to present themselves a living sacrifice is the very thing that we must lean on to cause us to be a living sacrifice. Now, if I couldn't say that any more confusing than that, I'll just point out to you that in verse 1, it's by the mercies of God. If we miss the mercies of God in our life, then we do not have the foundation or the motivation to present our lives a living sacrifice. Romans 1, Paul begins there with the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is, in it is the righteousness of God from faith to faith. He goes on through this letter. In chapter 2, we see that the, the goodness of God, His forbearance and His long-suffering leads us to repentance. In chapter 3, we see how, how wretched we are and how we do not seek God. There is none who seeks God. But yet, through the gospel, through Jesus, God justifies those who come to Christ in faith. In chapter 4, we see an example of Abraham And that again, by faith, we can be justified before the Father. Chapter 5, we see something similar to that. And at the end of it, we see in verse 20 that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You see, we're seeing the mercy of God in this. In chapter 6, we find here that... We have been set free from sin. In the beginning of the chapter, For um, he says in verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So our union with Christ is the sheer mercy of God. Over and over again, we could see that we have no more condemnation because of Christ. 
in chapter 9, we come there, and really, this is something we need to pay attention to. Because in chapter 9, it is a difficult chapter. Chapter 9 and 11, and the truths that are found there are, are difficult. Because it teaches about the election of some to salvation. And I know it's a difficult doctrine to swallow, but it's here in the Bible. And what is interesting about chapters 9 and 11 is that it highlights the mercy of God. If you look at chapter 9, verse 16, So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And then we can look at verse 15, the verse previous to that, prior to that. He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And then you go down to verse 22. But if God, wanting to show His wrath, to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which, is, which he, had before, he had prepared beforehand for glory. You see, He's dealing here with election and the sheer... Mercy of God that is displayed in the life of any person who is saved. You go to chapter 10 and you see that there is this plea really to Israel to be saved. Because the gospel has been preached to them. It's in their mouth. It's in their heart. It's in their mouth that they might confess it. It's in their heart that they might believe it. Why is it there? Because it was preached there. And they are to confess Christ. They are to believe that God raised Him from the dead. And then the promise in verse 9 at the end of it, you will be saved. At the end of verse 13 or all of verse 13, He says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is the promise of Scripture. And it too is the sheer mercy of God. You go to chapter 11. He comes back here to talk about this difficult doctrine of election again. And then in verse, um, verse 30, and again, this is talking about national Israel and Gentiles being saved. I'm not going to get into that too much because we don't have time, but I want to point out the word mercy to you. In verse 30, for as you were once disobedient to God, he's talking about Gentiles there, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, there being Israel's disobedience. Verse 31, Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. So there is this theme of the mercy of God to save lost sinners through faith 
in Jesus Christ, and it's not according to the the will of the person to run. It's not according to the will of the person to receive Christ, but it is based upon the sheer mercy of God in election. And as difficult as that is to swallow, we see it in the Scriptures. And then Paul comes to Romans 12, verse 1, and he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What did you do to earn your salvation? What did you do to merit your salvation? You see, if you're saved today, beloved, it is because... Of the mercy of God in your life and in my life. It's not because we willed it ourselves. How do we live a living, be a living sacrifice to God? You do it by the mercies of God. If that's not motivating enough to live your life for Him and to present yourself, your members, to slaves of righteousness, then there's nothing else that will motivate you. There's no correcting anything in your life. There's no making your life better in some area in order to improve your marriage or to improve improve your, your workplace or to improve your family or to have a better life. There's nothing else that is motivating as that is in your life. It's the mercy of God. I want to point out to you back in Romans chapter 6, the same word that's used there for present your bodies a living sacrifice is found three times in Romans 6. In relation to this justification by faith and us being united with Christ. In Romans chapter 6 verse 13. And do not present, that's the same word, present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves to whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? And then in verse 19, I speak in human terms because the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of unrighteousness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That's what God is calling us to. I want to try to summarize this by reading from a gospel primer written by Milton Vincent. It is a gospel narrative, but this is the poetic version of that. And I'm going to pick up a few paragraphs into it, and I hope that this will um, describe for us well the mercies of God. Here's what he says. 
He says, yet I could not fail God much worse than I've done. Ignoring his glory for mine, I have run. I've spurned a life under his wisdom and care, begrudging him the throne and pretended me there. A prideful and lust laden path I have trod, transgressing all ten great commandments of God. My foolish rebellion gives God every right to damn me with haste to the miserable plight of terrible judgments in His lake of fire, where wrath is most fierce and will never expire. With wickedest sinners, I truly should know the worst of hell's furies for felling God so. So this is my status and these are my flaws apart from Christ Jesus and His saving cause. I carry sin's guilt and am gripped by sin's power, held fast to its various lust every hour, deserving of flames both within and without and sliding toward hell as I toss all about. To reprobate, even to play a small part in clearing my record or changing my heart. To pacify wrath and be worthy of grace. To make myself lovely and win God's embrace. Completely condemned by God's law in its whole. I've nothing to offer to ransom my soul. But wonder of wonders, so great to behold. My God chose to save me with methods so bold. What I could not render, God fully has done. In doing, He rendered it all through His Son. He sent Christ to die on the cross for my sin, to suffer my anguish, my pardon to win. Amazing it is, when I stop to regard, that God would consent to an anguish so hard, surrendering His Son unto mayhem and death, to torturous writhing till His final breath. Why does God forsake me alone, Jesus cried. Yet God left him hanging until he had died. That Jesus was willing his life to lay down, be scourged and insulted and wear thorny crown. For one such as I, who had spited God so, amazes and blesses and makes me to know that greater a lover is no man than he who laid down his life for a sinner like me. You see, the mercy of God is how we present our members, present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. That's our first point there. As we look into this and think about utilizing our spiritual gifts, the first thing that we need to get to do, get to doing is to proving the will of God that we talked about last week. And that proving of that will comes from the transformation in our lives that happens because we have presented our bodies a living sacrifice unto God. That's why it's the only service. The only way of worship that makes sense. I've got a lot more that I could say on that, but I guess we better go on to point number two. 
Get yourself, get over yourself is point number two. If we're going to use our spiritual gifts, we not only need to get to proving the will of God in our lives through the ways in which I just shared with you, but we need to get over ourselves. Believe it or not, we're moving on to verse 3. For I say, through the grace of God given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, somebody saw the PowerPoint before the service started today, and they said, did that point number two say get over yourself? And I said, yeah, it did. You weren't supposed to see that yet. But I said, but all that matters is, is it in the text? All right? So here's the question. Is it in the text? Get over yourself. Verse 3, that everyone among you not to think more highly than he ought to think. In other words, get over yourself. And then he says, but think soberly. But to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. If we're going to utilize our spiritual gifts in the church, we've got to be proving the will of God. We've got to have this mind that's being renewed. And that mind that's being renewed thinks rightly. It actually views ourselves the right way. Soberly means sensibly. It means sound. It means you're clear-headed. You're clear-minded. You're viewing yourself and the church in the right way. Let me give you really three things to go along with that. What does it mean to think soberly in this context? First of all, number one is this. You think soberly by understanding you have been dealt a measure of faith. You have, number one, been dealt a measure of faith. You see that at the end of verse 3. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Alright, so you think soberly by understanding that you've got something that was given to you. You You didn't generate that yourself. And you notice here in verse 3, everyone who is among you, each one a measure of faith. So each person in the body of Christ, each believer has this. All right. Number two, if you're taking notes, is you think soberly if you think of yourself as a member of the body, not the member of the body. All right. A member of the body. Look at verses 4 and 5. For... As we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Whether it's Ephesians 4 or 1 Corinthians 12 or here in Romans 12, Paul uses the body metaphor, the human body metaphor to describe the local church and the gifts in the church and that each gift serves a different role in the body to make it complete all right so if we're going to think soberly about ourselves number one we think that and know that we've been dealt a measure of faith 
Number two, we know that we are a member of the body, not the only member of the body. And then last, number three, is this. We think that we have received grace. That we have received grace. This faith and this grace that's found here is probably not saving faith and saving grace, but it is faith and grace to operate within the body of Christ. Now, we see this in two places here. We see it in verse 3. Paul says, For I say through the grace given to me, 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul was given grace to, uh, for apostleship, and he worked harder than all the apostles. Romans 1 verse 5, we see that he's received grace for apostleship. So the, the uh, role of apostle that, the, uh, that Paul is working from and writing from is because of the grace of God in his life. And then we can go down to verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Alright, so he talks about the grace given to him. And then in verse 6, he talks about the grace given to us. And they, these are, um, this grace is given and it's manifested in uh, gifts given to the church. So to think soberly, you think that you have been dealt a measure of faith. You have been, you are not a member, you are a member of the body, not the member or not the body. And then number three, you think and know that you have received grace from God. These are important. Now let's go to the next point. Point number three. Get to giving what you've been given. All right, so these are kind of three things that are essential for utilizing your spiritual gift in the local church. Get to proving the will of God. Get over yourself. You know, isn't it common that, you know, we don't usually have to tell people, Stop thinking so lowly of yourself. <laughs> Stop that. You shouldn't be so humble. <laughs> you know, usually we have to be reproved for being so prideful. And Paul here is telling them, get over yourselves. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. In verse 16, he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble do not be wise in your own opinion. Okay? And then point number three is get to giving what you've been given. If we have this measure of faith, if we have grace given to us in these grace gifts from God, God is a gracious Savior. He is a God of grace who saves us from our sin, but He is also a gracious Father who gives us good gifts. And th this word gift is actually a word that has the word grace in it. And it is uh, charisma. Grace is charis. Charisma. That is the word for gifts that we find here. God gives these gifts to us. They are grace gifts from God because he loves us and loves his church. So what are they? Let's work through them, all right? So get to giving what you've been given. What does Paul list? Number one is, well, seven gifts are found here. Seven gifts to give. The first one is prophecy. Prophecy. Maybe we'll do a 
lesson sometime just on prophecy. But if we were to work from this and take into consideration 1 Corinthians 14, 3, where prophecy uh, brings edification and exhortation and comfort to men. That that's what prophecy is in the church. It, it edifies, it exhorts, and it comforts. We would um, presume and believe that that is the speaking of divine truth, a divine utterance, which is the proclamation of the Word of God primarily. So prophecy... And you notice there in this verse that it says in verse 6, If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion or proportion to our faith. Alright? Prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, what in the world does that mean? There's different interpretations of this. Um... Maybe even different translations of it. Some would say that the definite article should go before faith. And it's in proportion to the faith. Like the the gospel. It should align with sound doctrine. Um, Another is that God has given us faith to operate to certain levels or certain capacities in the church. Like there are probably... um, not a ton of you in this room who would want to stand here on Sunday mornings and do what I'm doing. I'm just guessing. There are a few men here who would do that, but I'm guessing that there is probably the majority who would not want to stand here and do what I do on Sunday mornings. Okay? The reason I'm able to do this, as poorly as it may be, is only because God's given me a measure of faith to do this. Now, some of you teach some of, in classes in smaller settings. Some of you speak to individuals one-on-one, encouraging, edifying, comforting them through the Word. God's given you faith to do that. So whatever level you prophesy, if you will, upon, it is because of the measure of faith that God has given you. And whatever measure of faith He has given you, you should operate in that area. Now, the second one is ministry. This is an interesting word. Um, It's the word we get deacon from. It means service. And it is very broad. For instance, in Acts chapter 6, It can have to do with the ministry of the Word that the apostles would participate in. And it would have to do with serving tables as the seven deacons who were chosen there, most likely deacons chosen. It has to do with Martha serving in her home in Luke chapter 10 and the ministry that Paul had been given from the Lord. So it is very broad. And the ministry that we have and that each one of us has, we are to serve in that role. Number three is teaching. Teaching. I've told you before that this is the educating of the church. The educating of the church. 
The next one is exhorting or exhortation. The word exhortation, I saw this in an article that I read a couple weeks ago that I liked. A good way of describing exhortation is helping with words. You help others with your words. You are exhorting them. It might be through rebuke. It might be through comfort. It might be through warning. But you exhort. You help with words. And you'll notice that some of these are speaking gifts. Prophecy, teaching, and exhortation are speaking gifts. Next is giving. Giving. And... The apostle tells us that the one who gives is to give with what? What does it say? Generosity. Okay. Does anybody have a different translation? Liberality. Good. I'm sorry. What was it? Genuineness. Okay. Good. So it basically means they don't do it grudgingly. Don't give grudgingly. If you've been given the gift of giving, then do it with a whole heart. All right. Next is leading. How are those who who lead, how are they supposed to do that? What does the Bible say? With diligence. They do it with diligence. So perhaps we could say that that diligence means a readiness and a steadiness in leadership. They're eager to do it. There is a readiness and there is a steadiness in leadership. If you've been given the gift of leadership in the church, do it diligently. And then the last one is mercy. Mercy means to come to the aid of those who are in need. Well, isn't that what God's done for us? And there's people in the church who've been given this unique gift of coming and helping those who are in need. And how are they to do that? What does the Bible say? With cheerfulness. It's the word for hilari- that we get hilarious from. But they're to do this without grudging. It is to be done cheerfully. Now, you might notice, and I'm concluding right now, how this is kind of like, it's like he's saying, um, you know, minister in your ministering, prophecy, a portion to your faith, teaching in teaching, exhorting in exhortation. We, a word study, said that this is a, and I don't really understand all that I've read about this, but it's a locative, locative sphere. So there's a location in which God has given us opportunity to live out, to employ our gifts. There is an area in which God has given us to do that. And we ought not go looking for other areas when we are not serving in the area that God has granted to us, that being the local church. So, we can take from this, I hope, that the place where we are, Here in this body, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you have a spiritual gift and you can employ it here and you should. So we've seen these three things. We've seen that 
We need to get to proving the will of God. We need to get over ourselves and we need to get to giving what we've been given. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and it is wonderful. It's, um, these things are possible, Father, because of your mercies through Christ. And I thank you that we could be reminded of Jesus and what he has done to redeem us wretched sinners that we are. And I pray, Father, that if there's anybody here today who hasn't ever believed in Jesus, and then they today realize that they, they do. God, we know that's because of your mercy. And I pray, Father, that they would declare that and confess Christ as Savior. And I pray that we will employ our gifts as you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.